Hey there, welcome to the podcast. This is Pastor Jason. How are you doing today? Are you doing all right? I hope that you are wherever you are listening to this. If you are uh, driving on your way to work or maybe you're on the train or a boat or I actually know a friend of mine who listens while mowing their lawn. So it's not quite lawn mowing season, so I'm not sure what that means uh, for the rest of the year. But either way, um, I pray that you are having a really blessed day and that you are feeling God's presence in your life. Man, life around the church uh, continues to move. We're looking forward to, uh, gosh, in a couple of weeks is the beginning of Lent, and we have our Ash Wednesday service coming up on Wednesday, March 1st. Wednesday, March 1st at 7.30. It's going to be what we call around here a blended service. It's going to have a couple of different styles. Both of our uh, music directors, both our traditional and contemporary directors, are going to be co-leading this service. It's going to be really cool. And uh, we're going to do the ashes, and it's going to be a really great way to kind of set your heart right as uh, we all prepare for the journey that leads toward Easter. And now today, I hope that you enjoy uh, part two of our series on the Apostles' Creed, Credo, I Believe. Have a great week, everyone. Really, this series is meant to dig into that question. What is it that I believe and what is it that Christians believe? And why does it matter for my life here and now? If you missed it last week, uh, we had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. We talked a little science, a little philosophy. So if you missed out on last week's sermon, you can always get our sermons online at towerhillchurch.org. You get all caught up. And uh, I know uh, some of you have mentioned that you wanted to hear the sermon again because it was kind of packed with a lot of information. So uh, hopefully you listen to that. That's when we covered the first part of the creed. And we said, we use the analogy of the creed as something akin to pole vaulting. Of course. I'm going to be, but pole vaulting is this just incredible, beautiful activity where you launch yourself, and even just the physics of it are amazing. You launch yourself into a jump that you execute, you go over a bar. And we said that this is kind of like life. If life is like pole vaulting, if we are making this jump, uh, that we want to execute the jump of life and execute it well, then just like a pole vaulter, we have to hit something called a strike plate. If you don't hit the particular strike plate the right way, you're not going to be able to execute the jump. We said, well, the Christian faith is like one possible strike plate that we can hit. You can hit the strike plate of Islam. You can hit the strike plate of Judaism. You can hit the strike plate, all different flaws, the agnostic strike plate, the atheist strike plate. Whatever your strike plate is, you can hit it. And we believe that it's only by hitting the Christian faith strike plate that you will get over the bar. That bar being salvation, eternal life. Now, the Apostles' Creed then functions as the technique that we use to make sure that we hit the strike plate correctly, that we hit the right one. It's the positioning of the hands. It's the targeting of your eyes. It's the uh, steps that you take. The creed helps you make sure that you are hitting the plate correctly, that you are hitting the Christian faith correctly. Because there are a lot of things that claim to be Christian that don't line up with what comes from the Bible, what comes from the faith of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. 
And so that's why we are looking at the Apostles' Creed. And I, I know some of you have a Catholic background. You're used to saying the Creed all the time. Uh, others of you, the Creed is new to you. And so I hope that it's a, it's a new look at something maybe that has become very familiar. All right. So the first week we talked about the first part of the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, if we were to just stop right there, we would get the major religions of the world. It, it, there's nothing particularly Christian about that phrase. You would get Islam, you would get Judaism, you get Christianity, you get kind of the major faiths. It's this next part of the creed that is the beating heart. It is the Christian faith, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That we believe in God the Father in no other way than this, that also in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. As we mentioned last week, the Apostles' Creed, it's not like it was written on a blank slate of belief. It was actually written in response to a lot of alternate beliefs that were around in that second century. The Apostles' Creed was probably not written by the apostles, but it absolutely reflects the beliefs of the apostles because they didn't write it down until they felt like they had to in the face of challenge to the Christian faith. So it was specifically the challenge of Marcion. Marcion led a group of uh, Christians that spun off and uh, he had different thoughts about Christianity. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of the New Testament. Therefore, you get rid of the whole Old Testament. doesn't count. That Jesus is not the same God that the Old Testament's talking about. So therefore, you also have to eliminate some of the Gospels that talk about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So all you're left with is an edited version of the Gospel of Luke. And he also uh, kept most of the letters of Paul. And that was it. And he started teaching that this was the way to hit the strike plate. And so the early Christian community, the Christian church in that second century said, no, 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 that's not the faith that we get from Jesus Christ. So, so we better say something. And they write down the creed in response to Marcion. And uh, you know, the other part that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Go back, go back. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He's connected to them. He's not disconnected to them. So the creed also is very Trinitarian. It wants to say the God of Jesus is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And you'll see it's laid out in Trinitarian fashion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now not only were these kind of the Marcion views they were dealing with, but remember they were dealing with a lot of other alternative faiths in Jesus that were happening under the Christian umbrella. One of them was a Christian form of what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, unlike Marcionism, is still around today. There were some Christian Gnostics who did believe in Jesus Christ, but they had a very different view of who Jesus was and what exactly he accomplished and how we are saved through him. Now, listen, second century Gnosticism was really, really complicated. It, it was a combination of a lot of different beliefs from different places that were kind of mushed together. Into, so, in other words, I couldn't sit here and read a, a paragraph and say, this describes second century Gnosticism. That would probably describe one branch of, of Gnostics, and then there's a, another branch that believes something else, another branch. It was very convoluted. 
and it had a lot of systems. You think about Scientology and all of the systems that they have. It, I'll put it this way. Gnostic Christianity is something like, um, if Gnostic Christianity was true, it would be like the Da Vinci Code, like secret societies and secret handshakes and uh, conspiracies and not secret knowledge and all of that. Okay, so, but I can tell you a couple of things about Gnosticism that I think help in our understanding of the creed, some basic points. The first is, is that the world of matter is evil and the world of the spirit is good. They believed in this fundamental dualism that anything in the physical world is bad and your spirit's good. Uh, so the idea is uh, the human soul is good and it's encompassed by this husk that needs to be removed because the husk is evil. So we go through our whole lives in this evil shell and then finally we're set free to be with God. And it's funny because if you were to present that idea to a, a, an Old Testament Israelite, they would think you're being ridiculous, that there is no separation between the soul and the body. They are interwoven, they're integrated. That God's shalom was about shalom, physical, spiritual, professional, familial, uh, every way that you could experience God's peace, that everything was integrated. So they would think that, that is, that's crazy talk. But the idea was, it said, well, no, it's, it's your, your physical body's bad, which of course goes right against God saying that he created it and it was good. But that uh, the, the whole goal of life is to get beyond that. You see, I love this painting. It's a painting of, of Gnosticism. You see this guy, he's like trying to get out and he's looking to the heavens, but he's stuck in the physical world. That's meant to describe the journey of the Gnostic. So you have this dualism of body and spirit. And that salvation happens by knowing that you need to deny the evil shell and engage the good spirit. And the word for knowledge is gnosis, the Greek gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And that's where we get Gnosticism from, that if you have gnosis, this mysterious state of knowledge, you achieve salvation. The idea was Jesus taught in parables that he handed down secret knowledge to his disciples that is not made known to us in the Bible. And what they say is, well, it's because he used parables. Obviously, he didn't want everybody to know. And then he told his disciples the secret meaning. And unless you figure out the secret meaning, you're not in. And the way you figure out the secret meaning is you have to grow more and more spiritually mature, and then you finally get the gnosis, the knowledge, the secret meaning, and then you achieve salvation. A couple of other things that Gnostics believed was that God is ultimately unknowable. Can't know God. I feel like this thought is really prevalent in today's day and age. You can't know God. Who are we? We're just humans. We have finite brains. We can't figure out an almighty God. They believe God's unknowable. Also that Jesus, obviously they had a problem with the incarnation because if all material reality is bad, then how could God be flesh? How could God be human? Well, he couldn't really. So he was just sort of like a human. And so they said that, well, his human part of him experienced suffering and death, but his spirit didn't experience suffering and death. That was something they believed. They also believed that, that it had big ethical 
conclusions, uh, ethical consequences, that, that humans can actually live sinless lives, that it was a knowledge problem, that if you had enough gnosis, enough knowledge, you could live perfectly like Jesus. So what's weird is now, so this was a branch. It came out of, and it was integrated with the Christian faith. So it was really confusing people. And we see a lot of these thoughts, I think, even lingering today. So the issues of faith now for our second century Christians are stacking up. Like there's a lot of things we need to address. And these are the things that the creed is trying to tackle. And they start out and they said, wait, what do you mean God's not knowable? Haven't you read John 14, 7? Remember what Jesus says? If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Like, you're right, we do have finite brains, but what if the infinite God made himself knowable? That's a different story. So, well, wait a minute. What do you mean that the divine Jesus didn't suffer and die? Haven't you read 2 Corinthians 5.21? God made him who had no sin To be sin for us. What is sin? Sin is not a physical problem. It is a spiritual problem. God was made sin. Made death. So that we could have life. No, no. Jesus, all of Jesus, suffered and died on the cross. And what do you mean? Humans are saved by secret knowledge. That doesn't sound right. Let's read Romans uh, chapter 3. Verses 21 through 25. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Not just the ones who know all the secret knowledge. All who believe through faith. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Not secret knowledge, but by grace. Through faith. It's not something we earn by knowing more and more and more and more. It's something that we receive that we do not earn. So these were actually only some of the issues that they had to address uh, during the second century. And I find it funny that 1,800 years later, we're dealing with a lot of the same issues. I think definitely about God being knowable and about Jesus, the nature of Jesus. Was he human? Was he divine? Was he both? I mean, you hear it all the time. I love Jesus. Jesus was a great teacher. But, you know, so I try to learn from Jesus. But, you know, he clearly wasn't God. A lot of people believe that. He's a really good person that had a big impact on the world. Or I think the whole Gnostic view of, of the split between the body and the soul people have, absolutely. That, that the soul is kind of incorruptible and the body's corruptible. And they're somehow separated. A lot of Gnostic views even persist today. And so these issues that they're trying to deal with is they want to say, well, God is knowable. There is no dualism. Both your body and your spirit are killed by sin and must be made new and brought to life. And grace comes and you receive it through faith alone. 
You see, the fear of the church is the same fear that, that we should have now, the fear back then, is that people are missing the strike plate. They're missing the mark. And they think they're hitting the faith in Christianity, and they're not. And so the creed is so important because it helps us interpret how we're supposed to be hitting our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you'll notice most of the creed is about Jesus, which is interesting because God the Father gets like a couple sentences. Holy Spirit gets one phrase. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. Uh, it, that just wasn't the issue at the time. The, that issue came later in the Council of Nicaea. The Holy Spirit was the issue, so we get a lot more on the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed. But this one's all about Jesus. And so we're, let's take it piece by piece. We say that I believe in Jesus. When I say I believe in Jesus, I'm declaring that I believe that in human history, it can be verified that someone named Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked among, among us. The amazing thing is that the, the early followers of Christ, they weren't putting their faith in some ancient forebear, like, like an Abraham or a Moses. No, no, no. They're putting their faith in following somebody uh, who lived with them, who worked with them, who, who taught them and healed around them, who laughed with them, who went fishing with them. Somebody who was flesh and blood, who existed in real time and space. The Christian faith is a historical faith. And historical facts are tough to fabricate. For example, if I were to say, okay, 10 years from now, I go out and tell a bunch of people, yeah, I lived in the uh, Rumson, Red Bank, Little Silver area uh, in 2017. And let me tell you what that was like. In 2017, Bruce Springsteen was our mayor. And, and he was awesome. He was so good at it. And then you know, every Christmas Eve, he'd come around. He'd sing songs to little kids and throw out cookies. Uh, he'd go door to door. He would just knock. And, uh, and he'd say, Santa Claus coming to town. You know, and and it, was, it was amazing. It was so incredible. He would do this. And uh, man, he, was just, he was just really a great guy. It was, that was a great time living in that area. Right? All it would take is one person to be like, whatever. I lived there in 2017. That is not the case. No, he did not uh, come every Christmas Eve and uh, sing to everybody. No, he was not the mayor of Rumson. <laughs> Jesus, if Jesus' story were made up, there would have been a whole bunch of people saying, no, 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 time out, I was there. It's tough to fabricate his historical fact. Even non-religious people do not argue with the historicity of Jesus' life, Jesus of Nazareth. So we're saying we, we have a historical faith. It's not just simply tied to a legend. It's tied to, some, it's tied to something that actually happened. Okay. I mean, born in the time of Emperor Augustus, he had a teaching and healing ministry that went for about three years in the ancient Near East, mostly in that ancient... Uh, land of Israel. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. I mean, you can verify Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. But of course, we don't stop there. It's not just a human story. We believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Christ wasn't his last name. I once thought it was. When I was a new Christian, I didn't know what that was. 
It's not a last name. It's a title. It's a title that means anointed one. It's where it comes from. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew meaning Messiah. Messiah or anointed one. Now anointing. This word gets used in Christianese all the time. Like Christianese. We have our own like inside language. Anointing. Oh, you have an anointing or this anointing. Or yeah, that was anointed or this and I was like, and we are, like, that sounds great. I don't know what the heck that is, but it must be something good. Anointing just simply refers to an Old Testament practice where prophets, priests, and kings were set apart for God's service. And it was a ceremony where they use olive oil and they would pour it on them. And it was a ceremony that set them apart for the service of God. Jesus Christ is the one who by birth He didn't need a ceremony. By birth, he is the anointed one. The one who has been set apart for the service of God. He is the savior. The pinnacle of what it means to be anointed. That is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We believe that he is the one that the Old Testament has promised. For both the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles. He is the Christ. He is our prophet, priest, and king. All right, we continue. His only son. When we acknowledge that Jesus is his only son, we say that we are all adopted sons and daughters of God. We didn't start out naturally as sons and daughters. We were adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who from birth was perfect. He was the son. He was the sinless one. God's only son. And we see all throughout the scripture, we see through the gospels, Jesus referring as a son to the father. His prayer language is very intimate. He uses the word Abba when he prays to the father, which is something like dad or daddy. There's an intimacy in the way that Jesus is praying. He is the Son, the only Son of God. I think also what gets missed often in our culture, because our culture is a little bit different, is what it meant to have a firstborn son in your family. I mean, everything back then was about your future, your legacy, your most prized relationship. Your most prized possession, not possession, but you know what I mean, is is the son. It's the firstborn son who is going to inherit everything and carry on the name and carry on the family business and carry on the legacy. All of your hope for your future was in your son. And I think the fact that God sacrificed his firstborn, his only son, was meant to say that God was willing to go to any lengths To bring us home. Even sacrificing his only son. The one whom he held most dear. His only son, our Lord. This is where it gets real. Our Lord. You see, we all are perfectly fine with Jesus' savior. We kind of struggle a bit with Jesus as Lord. 
Because Jesus as Lord means he has a say in my life. Like he can save me all he wants, but I'd rather live the way that I want. Jesus as Lord is saying he has say so in the way that I'm going to serve him in the way that I live my life. To say Jesus as Lord was also very, very radical back then. I think it's radical now, but it was radical back then. In the sense that in, in that day, there was only one Lord, Caesar. If you were to say Jesus is Lord, that could get you killed. That was a political statement. It was a very, very risky statement to say Jesus is Lord. I would say even, uh, even the fact of the, of the crucifixion. So in Roman culture, if you were spiked to a cross, it wasn't just because the Romans wanted you dead. It's because they wanted you humiliated. I have to think that part of the decision to crucify had to do with the fact that people were claiming Jesus is Lord. It was just as radical a statement for the Jewish people. There was only one Lord, and that's Yahweh. You couldn't say that somebody else is Lord. What you're saying is Jesus is Lord. You're saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one true God. And we all learned as little kids, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wait a second. So you're saying that Jesus is Yahweh. You could see why they freaked out and talked about blasphemy. It was only something that was reserved for God. Okay. So we say all of this about a second century statement of faith. But how do we know that it actually does reflect the earliest Christians' beliefs? Because if you do the math, if Jesus died in about 33, and the creed was written in 180, that's, you know, 150 years. That's a long time. Does this really reflect the beliefs of the earliest followers of Jesus? Or is this something that just kind of was added later? This is one part where I could definitively give you proof that this was the belief of the earliest followers of Jesus. So mark this down. There aren't many places where I could just say, this is how you prove it. But you could actually prove it in Scripture as we go to Philippians chapter 2. I took a picture of my Greek uh, New Testament. Um, if you see this part where it goes, where it goes to chapter, or, or sorry, chapter two, verse six, it goes six through eleven. It's indented. It's indented. Some of your Bibles will show this. There's a section here that's that's indented. The reason why it's indented is because it's a block quote. Paul, as he's writing his letter to the Philippians, is quoting something. Now. Let's say I'm writing an academic paper, which I've had to do a lot recently. Say I'm writing academic, and I quote something. Logically, if I'm quoting something in my paper, that thing had to be written and published prior to when I wrote my paper. Okay, logically. Now, if I were quoting like a, a euphemism or something that a lot of people would know, that would probably have had to have been around even longer if people knew what I was saying by just quoting it. Now, it is believed, um, scholars believe that the book of Philippians was written in the year 60. That's 27 years after the death of Jesus. 
Which means if Paul's quoting something in here, that's got to come earlier, within that 27 years. And, and I submit that if he thought that they knew it, it had to come way closer to Jesus than further away. That the earliest Christians believed this little creed that's tucked in the book of Philippians. And that this was a statement of faith from our earliest Christian brothers and sisters. I think it gets us within a dozen years from Jesus, which is really, really close. It's at least the first generation of followers. So let's read that now. What did they believe? It said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now here's the quote. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's what they believed. This is what the people who were with Jesus believed. So how does that impact us? How do we make sure that we hit the strike plate? How does this help us to do that? I want to offer a couple of suggestions as as we close up. When we say that I believe, I think the first thing, what does it mean for us? It says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he is my savior, that that he forgives me of my sin by what he did on the cross. That I'm also affirming that he was somebody that came into human history and changed it forever. And I am not, I don't come to faith by secrets. I come to faith by what's been made known and what's been handed to me as grace. It's not something I earn through more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. I think the other part is I believe in his own, that he is his only son, that Jesus is unique, that he shows us what it looks like to live as children of God. He is our example of how to live in faith and life. He is the perfect one. He is the child by birth that we are all aspiring to be. That we can't be made perfect if we just get more knowledge. We can't be sinless. We look to the sinless one to see how we are to live our lives. And that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And like I said, we're good with Savior, we're bad with Lord. But when I say Jesus is my Lord, that he's the one I'm going to serve with my life. I'm saying, I am not Lord, my family's not Lord, my job's not Lord, my possessions are not Lord. Even my goals and dreams are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that has a say. And that's why you hear people say things like, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We acknowledge that he's both. We have to trust that God wants to lead us as Lord. We have to trust that he's going to lead us better than we can lead ourselves. A quick illustration of that. Uh, when I was growing up, you've heard a lot about my uh, relationship. My stepdad was, was pretty rough. Um, 
and I may have told this story a while back, but there was one day he came home with a, a pickup truck full of these concrete blocks that were like big triangles that were supposed to go on the foundation of a house. And they were each about 100 pounds, and there were five or six of them uh, that he had in his truck. And he came to me one day, and he says, Jason, I want you to take these and put them under the crawl space of the house because I want to do something to shore up the foundation. And it was a crawl space. Uh, dirt bottom, you know, it's like this high, so I had to really, and you know, I was a big high school kid, I lifted weights, you know, I thought I could do anything, wonder why I have back problems, you know, but, um, so he's like, you know, put these under the house, and I spent all day, you know, so I, I bring the weights to the crawl space, and I'd figure out how to push them somehow with like no leverage, and get them, it took me all day to do it. A couple of weeks later, he comes back, and he says, you know what, uh, I changed my mind, I want those out. And can you put him back in my truck? And again, all day, putting those back in his truck. I think sometimes we feel like God is going to tell us something and then make us undo it. Or God's going to lead us in a way and it's going to lead us into a way that, that causes more work and pain. That's not been my experience of Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord is saying, I trust that you're going to lead me somewhere. That the work you're going to have me do is going to count for something. In your bulletin today, in your um, insert, there's something that we put on that maybe you've perhaps heard before. It's called the sinner's prayer. I've heard from people like, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I believe? I want to encourage you to take a look at that prayer. By praying that prayer, you are saying that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. I think that's a beginning point. And I do pray that as we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding and grace of God, that we could embrace the creed as a way of understanding what our faith is all about.